This is Help Wanted, the show that tackles all the big work questions you cannot ask anyone else. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And I'm New York Times bestselling author and money expert, Nicole Lappin. The helpline is open. I bet that you have opened up Instagram recently and seen a friend of yours post, and maybe you've done this yourself, a series of images of them that were created by artificial intelligence. They're pretty amazing. They look often very realistic and often very artistic. And that's pretty fun, right? I mean, it feels like you're kind of staring into the future. But you know who is not as excited about that? Well, let me read you an email that I just got from an illustrator and art director at a book company. The person wrote, I've been watching the public progress of AI-produced art, but I'm having trouble thinking about the viability of art as a career in the near future less for me than for artists behind me because of AI. AI is not the end of art, but a lot of people making a living as artists, meager ones at that, could find this to be a tipping point for them. Is there a limit to the mantra that change is opportunity? That's what this illustrator wrote me. And that is not something that people just in art are feeling. It seems that robots are coming for a lot of people's jobs, not just artists. I mean, there's automation at factories. There's talk of self-driving cars. That's a lot of people whose jobs are going to be replaced. AI can now even write, write words like a human. In fact, I had an artificial intelligence program write the next part of what I'm about to say to set this episode up. Check this out. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to ensure that your job doesn't get replaced by technology. First, let's take a look at some historical examples of industries that have been heavily impacted by technology. One of the most well-known examples is the transportation industry. In the past, transportation jobs such as trucks and taxi drivers were highly sought after because they offered a steady income and benefits. However, with the advent of self-driving cars, many of these jobs are now at risk of being replaced by technology. So. What can you do to make sure that your job isn't replaced by technology? One option is to focus on developing skills that are difficult for technology to replicate. For example, jobs that require creative problem solving, critical thinking, and interpersonal skills are less likely to be replaced by technology. Additionally, it is important to stay up to date with the latest technology and be willing to learn new skills. This will make you more valuable to your employer and increase your chances of staying employed in the face of technological changes. In conclusion, adapting to technology is an important part of ensuring that your job isn't replaced by it. By focusing on developing skills that are difficult for technology to replicate, staying up to date with the latest technology, and being proactive about your career, you can increase your chances of staying employed and thriving in the face of technological change. And that was the robot talking. And I have to say, the robot was so good that this episode is done. Okay, this episode isn't done, but I got to say, that was very impressive. That was good advice. But I'm going to offer you some additional perspective because I think that the robot missed a few things. Number one, the robot just kind of went on and on in ways that maybe feel unconvincing to you because it's just stating facts or at least perspective, but also because there's some more nuance here. And if you want to feel empowered and not afraid, and in fact, be able to recognize the new opportunities being created by the things that seem like they're taking away our opportunities, well, then your competitive advantage starts now. To start, 
I am going to do a thing that <laughs> actually the robot suggested, which was to look at history. But let me not just tell you a simple fact. Let me tell you a story. One of my favorite stories from history, because what it captures really well is what it looks like when we panic over change that is coming to us and therefore don't spend enough time and energy focused on how that change can create new gain. And if we find that gain first and move towards it, we are ahead of the game. So here's that story. 1877, Thomas Edison invents the phonograph, or the very first record player. It was a cylinder back then, actually, but it eventually became flat. And this was absolutely revolutionary to humankind. Just consider how insanely disruptive this idea was for all of human history, for all of human history up until this moment, the only way that you could listen to music is if a human being was standing in front of you and playing an instrument. And then suddenly that changed. And now a machine could capture sound and replay it to you whenever you wanted. People didn't believe it at first. They thought that there had to be a band hiding behind a wall somewhere. But once they discovered that this technology was real, they loved it. They were thrilled by it. They brought it into their homes. But you know who wasn't excited about it? Musicians. Because, of course, they saw themselves being replaced. Why would you hire a musician when now you had a machine that could just play the music? And so musicians started fighting back against this technology. The leader of the resistance was a guy named John Philip Sousa. You may not know his name today, but you definitely do know his music. He wrote all the military marches that we're still familiar with today. So da 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 that's John Philip Sousa. So John Philip Sousa wrote this amazing piece that you <laughs> you should Google right now. It was called The Menace of Mechanical Music, and he wrote it in 1906 in Appleton's magazine. And it was an argument against recorded music and all the ways in which this new technology was going to be damaging. And my favorite of his arguments goes like this. He said, if you allow recorded music technology, the phonograph, the first record player, if you allow that into the home, it will replace all forms of live performance at home. Because of course, why would somebody play an instrument when there's a machine that could do it for them? And because all Live music performance is now gone from the home. Mothers will no longer sing to their children. Because, of course, why would mothers do that when there's a machine that could do it for them? And because children grow up to imitate their mothers, the children will grow up to imitate the machines. And thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. That's the concern here. That was his argument. And he was serious about it. And people believed it. And we might say now, well, that is ridiculous. But that is not a ridiculous way of thinking. That is, in fact, exactly how we think now. Because what we tend to do when we see change, particularly change that feels pretty close and intimate, is we immediately equate it with loss. We immediately look at something that we are comfortable with and familiar with, and we say, I am no longer going to have access to that thing. And then because we want to know the future, we want to know what's going to come next, we start to extrapolate based on what we think we know, which is loss. And therefore, if I lose this, then I'm going to lose that. And if I lose that, then I'm going to lose that other thing. And that's how we start to get into a spiral of panic. And that's what John Philip Sousa was doing because he couldn't imagine a world in which 
the robot does not fully replace the human. And then he started to say, well, if the robot replaces the human, then what else gets replaced? Fundamental things. But what actually happened? Well, what actually happened, of course, is that recorded music technology enabled musicians to record something in New York today and have it available in San Francisco tomorrow. It allowed musicians to reach people that they couldn't physically reach before. John Philip Sousa was in the live music business before recorded music because the only way in which he could make money off of a performance was to actually travel somewhere and then perform live in front of people. But you know what? That's pretty limiting. There are only so many places that somebody can be, and so the record players were now allowing musicians to totally scale their reach. John Philip Sousa could reach so many more people than he ever could before. And because he didn't see that, he spent a lot of time and energy protecting a system that limited his own economic opportunity. And that is the thing that I worry about with us. Now, let's be clear. Recorded music hurt people. It did. It it caused a lot of job loss. I mean, musicians, for example, used to be hired to play the soundtracks of movies in movie theaters because before there was recorded music, you had silent movies and then people would watch them with a live band performing the soundtrack. And now, of course, you didn't need that. A lot of those people got laid off. Transitions are not easy. But here's the thing. If a change is here, then it doesn't really makes sense for us to spend too much energy debating whether or not that change should happen once it has already happened. Instead, what we need to do is start to think about what it means for us and how we can start to capitalize on it. How we can be the musicians from the late 1800s and the early 1900s that actually started moving quickly towards recorded music and figuring out how to define that space ourselves rather than be the people who resist it and are left behind. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, that's fine, that's a nice story, but is that how things really work always? And the answer I have found throughout time is, yeah, more or less, because of this thing that is called the lump of labor fallacy. Stick around, Help Wanted will be right back. You know, Jason, I wouldn't let just anyone be my co-host. Oh, no? No, I take very seriously who I bring on to my dream team. And that's why when I need to hire, I go to LinkedIn Jobs. Well, you're not the only one. Two and a half million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. That's right, because LinkedIn has a network of more than a billion professionals. And you can find candidates that you can't find anywhere else. It's also so quick and easy. When you're running a business, you can't be a full-time recruiter, too. You're a full-time everything else. But with LinkedIn jobs, you can post a job description in just a few clicks. And did you know there's even an AI feature that can write the job description for you? So brilliant. What a great time saver. And it's also my favorite price. Free? Free 99. Yes. I mean, if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you are looking in the wrong place. Go post your job for free at linkedin.com slash help wanted. That is linkedin.com slash help wanted to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Help Wanted. Let's get to it. So the lump of labor fallacy is a economic term. And the fallacy is there's a perception that there is a fixed amount of work to be done 
and a fixed number of people to do that work. That is the lump of labor, a fixed lump of labor. Just imagine it, like plop down on the table. That is your lump of all the work that is to be done. And it's a balance. And if you do anything to upset that balance, well, then you just cause permanent imbalance. This is why, for example, people fear that immigration leads to job loss because they say, well, these new people are going to come into a community or into a country and they're going to start taking the jobs from the people who already live there and therefore it's going to create a lot of unemployment. But that is never actually what happens. That's not how those stories play out. And the reason for that, of course, is because immigrants aren't just workers. They are also consumers. They don't just work, they also want things. And they want things that are going to be produced by and sold by other businesses. It expands the ecosystem. And they also can create their own companies. And so this is what we see all the time, not just with immigration, but with technology as well, that when you introduce new technology into an industry, it totally creates disruption. There's no question about that. But then it also creates growth. Another way of thinking about it is that a long time ago, like 150 years ago, the majority of every dollar that somebody earned in America went towards their basic living expenses. And so that meant that, you know, they were buying food and housing and so on. And then as manufacturing improved and things became cheaper and food wasn't as expensive and housing maybe wasn't as expensive, well, then they didn't need to spend as much money on their basic living expenses. So what happens as a result? Is it simply that because all these things got cheaper that now there's less money to go around and there's more unemployment? No, because the thing is that now that people are saving money, now that more of every dollar that they spend, they are able to keep, they start looking for other ways to spend that money. And they want to enjoy themselves. And therefore, we create a leisure economy with movies and attractions and sporting events. And like that's where all that stuff comes from. It comes from people who now have more money and more time thanks to new technology. And it drives opportunity where people start to say, well, I'm going to create new businesses that are going to serve people and their new needs. Now, how can we apply that to what's happening today? Well, if I was advising that artist who reached out to me, what I would say is, why don't you step back and think about what the application is going to be of this AI art? Like, where are people going to find this stuff really useful? And where are they going to be less interested in it? And then you might want to start looking at how to participate in one or both of those arenas. For example, I don't know if you've ever created AI art, but I have actually, uh, because uh, there was a program and, um, and and I spent some money on it. And then, um, and then I learned a little bit of how to do it. And it turns out that giving direct to AI is actually pretty complicated. And it's a skill that people are now developing because AI doesn't, it doesn't just like spit things out at random. Or I mean, I guess it could, but you don't want 5 million images to look through. What you want to do is give it direction. And that direction is an interesting technical skill that an artist who already has an artistic eye and then can learn how to direct the AI probably can create all sorts of amazing things that are unique to their new evolved skill set. And I guarantee you that there are going to be jobs in the future where people are working with the machines rather than just figuring out how to circumvent the machines. But also, let's start to think about how 
these kinds of changes and maybe even truly replacing something that we used to be familiar with is going to lead to us recognizing better ways to do things. What could that be? Well, okay, let's think through a couple of them. Email. When email started to replace letters, handwritten letters, you know what happened as a result? Stationery became really special. And people started to build companies around serving the needs of those who wanted to do something more unique and more human than just send an email to the people that they love. It sparked a whole new way to think about industry. I've been talking with friends of mine who are professors at schools, and they have been thinking a lot about how their students are now going to be able to use AI writing. AI writing, like, you know, the quality of which you just heard earlier in this episode, it's really good. So what happens when students just start using that tool to write school papers? At that point, how can you possibly catch it? And how can you possibly then know if the student has learned anything? I was talking about this with a professor recently, and I said to him, you know what? Let's just imagine for a moment that because it's going to be impossible to police whether students are using AI to write their papers, the only solution is to stop assigning papers. What would happen as a result? And the professor said, well, I guess we would have to come up with other ways to evaluate whether or not that student had absorbed the information. And I said, all right, well, let's start to think about what that would look like. Like, what's a better system? Because I'll be honest with you, when I was a student, I mean, I had to write those papers myself because there wasn't any AI to do it, but I totally figured out how to game the system because it's not that hard. <laughs> I was an English major and I would have to write essays about books that I did not read. You know what I did? Here's what I did. I just like flipped to the middle of the book because obviously if I reference something at the beginning of the book, it's going to be clear that I didn't read it. So I, I go to the middle of the book, I read like a scene or a chapter, and then I know what the professor is looking for. I know that they want me to engage in certain ideas. I can use just a tiny amount of reference and then I can just kind of riff on it and produce something that's basically going to achieve the things that they're looking for. Did I learn anything? No, I did not. It was a totally ridiculous waste of time exercise for both of us. So now what we are really doing is seeing that technology is exacerbating and finally revealing that maybe the college essay is just not a good way. Maybe it was never a good way to actually grade students and that we've just been doing it for so long because it was the only idea we had. And now it's going to go away and we're going to be forced to think about something different, something better. What could it be? Well, in that conversation with a friend of mine who's a professor, what we came to was, well, what would happen if students actually had to do some kind of oral exam where, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be like a big speech and presentation, but something like maybe almost a kind of mini dissertation where you come in and you have to have a conversation and answer some questions and engage in big ideas with the professor. At that point, actually, the student has to have a far wider knowledge base about the subject matter than if they were just narrowly writing some stuff on paper that was just evaluated based on what they wrote down. This is a better system, I think. Let's get rid of the essay. Fine. AI replaces the essay. Good. Because it wasn't that good to begin with and there are better systems. So now let's apply that to everything that we think and do. 
just because a machine is coming for and possibly going to replace something that we do doesn't mean that the thing that we do is the only way to do it or the better way to do it. And what we instead should be thinking is, okay, how do I find better ways to do the thing that we really wanted to do? Because if you are an artist, your job isn't actually to make art. Your job is actually to achieve an emotion with people because people are looking for something. They're looking for art that is going to make them feel a certain way or that's going to help them feel like their room looks really nice or their design on this uh, wedding announcement looks really nice or whatever the case is. You aren't just selling a piece of art. You're selling an emotion just in the same way as a professor isn't actually looking for an essay. They're looking for engagement with the material. Once you start to step back from the specific way in which you articulate whatever it is that you do, you will find that actually maybe there were better ways to do it all along. Will this be easy? It will not. Would it be nice if we could actually just freeze time and do whatever we do really well without it ever having to change? Yeah, that sounds pretty nice, but that's not the world that we're in. We're in a world in which things change and technology is constantly improving. But throughout time, the constant is that when technology improves or automates or makes more convenient anything that we're doing, yeah, it causes some disruption, but it also creates massive opportunities. And that is what's in front of us now. And this entire thing, start to finish, was written by AI. No, I'm kidding, it wasn't. It was mostly me talking, but that stuff in the beginning was AI. And you know what? I'm not afraid of it. I think it was pretty good. Help Wanted is a production of Money News Network. Help Wanted is hosted by me, Jason Pfeiffer. And me, Nicole Lappin. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. If you want some help, email our helpline at helpwanted at moneynewsnetwork.com for the chance to have some of your questions answered on the show. And follow us on Instagram at Money News and TikTok at Money News Network for exclusive content and to see our beautiful faces. Maybe a little dance? Oh, I did sign up for that. All right. Well, talk to you soon. 